Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, July 22nd. Many in Colorado are working to protect reproductive rights in a post-Roe America. Providers are now juggling a sharp rise in demand from out-of-state patients. KUNC's Robin Vincent reports some are facing desperate circumstances. On a recent Saturday morning in Boulder, thousands of people marched through the streets to protest the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Moments before, abortion provider Dr. Kelly Peters told the crowd that Boulder Valley Women's Health Center has been inundated with calls since Roe was overturned. It was heartbreaking to hear women on the phone and hear their partners on another phone in the background frantically trying to get appointments. Peters says last year, less than 3% of patients were from out of state. That number is up to 25%. It's a huge spike, and to keep up with the demand, they're rushing to hire more staff, adding another day per week for abortion care, and even double booking appointments. During an interview at the clinic, Peters says that for months, some out-of-state patients have been pushing the limits to make it to Boulder driving 14, 15 hours from Texas, driving through snowstorms, trying to get a hotel. You know, the cost of gas has gone up, the cost of airline flights has gone up, everything's gone up, and some people can't do that. Boulder has a pro-choice history. Back in 1986, the progressive-leaning city enacted a policy prohibiting anti-abortionists from approaching patients entering abortion clinics. Now, with Roe overturned, protective measures are increasingly emerging at the state level. A new law guarantees the right to an abortion, and Governor Jared Polis recently issued an order protecting out-of-state patients and their providers. Colorado is going to be so important in the near future, immediate future, right now. That's David Cohen. He studies abortion law at Drexel University. He points out two things that make Colorado key in the battle for abortion access. It's central geographic location and it's many neighbors curbing abortion access. But there's a huge equity component to this. Travel involves privilege, and privilege tracks with race and class in this country. And so the people who are going to be impacted the most by a world in which much of abortion care is based on your ability to travel are going to be poor people and people of color. 21-year-old Haley Plush falls into the former category, money is really tight. She's part of a growing group of women coming to Colorado for care, sometimes under very difficult circumstances. The whole gist of it was just hard. I mean, we're broker than broke right now. It took all of our money to get up there. The Wyoming resident is still processing the trauma she endured before she was able to get an abortion. Plush has a rare condition called hyperemesis, which causes severe nausea, vomiting, and weight loss during pregnancy. I got to the point where I was bedridden. 
um, I was throwing up blood. So I drove myself to the hospital here. She says she went to two different Wyoming emergency rooms, emaciated and begging to end her pregnancy. Doctors told her they couldn't help. The only thing somebody could tell me was, well, we're going to do what we can to help you continue with this pregnancy. Wyoming has long been a so-called abortion desert. It has just one provider in the northwest corner of the state that offers medication abortions. Now the state is poised to outlaw abortion entirely with a trigger law on the books. Sick and desperate, Plush called Planned Parenthood, and they found her an appointment at their Fort Collins clinic. That's more than four hours from her home in Riverton. When she called me back and she told me that they got me in as an emergency in the morning at 9 o'clock, I think I called my grandma sobbing. Like, I was so grateful and I was so thankful just to have somebody, like, listen to me that I sat there and I cried. Plush got money from the Wyoming nonprofit Chelsea's Fund to pay for the procedure, but that money didn't cover gas, hotels, and a car that broke down along the way. She and her husband are now holding yard sales to make ends meet and visiting food banks. A couple hundred miles away in Cheyenne, Wyoming, a similar story has been playing out for Jordan Garland. She's also relying on money from Chelsea's Fund to pay for her upcoming abortion in Colorado. She's 24 and lives in a camper with her boyfriend. I'm actually very scared just because it's, well, for one, I've never had surgery. I've never gone through anything through, like, I've never had anything very medical emergency-wise happen. So it's kind of a big step out of my comfort zone. Garland was shocked when she learned she was pregnant. She drove 100 miles to a Planned Parenthood in Denver to then discover she was too far along to be treated there. The clinician referred her to Dr. Warren Hearn in Boulder. The longtime abortion provider specializes in complex cases, but getting an appointment with him is becoming harder. We're booked out two or three weeks, and that's never happened before. Hearn says the problem for Garland and others is that a lack of abortion care nationwide means patients will increasingly have to put off the procedure even longer, and the need to see specialists like him will deepen. People need immediate attention, and they shouldn't have to wait, and it's very bad for them to have to wait. It increases the risk, it increases the cost, and emotional anguish and all the rest. The 84-year-old physician is trying to meet an increasing need by training other physicians to work with him, and he has tentative plans to build a bigger facility in Boulder. Still, even in a pro-choice community, Hearn operates with eyes in the back of his head. I may not assume that I'm safe at any time. He didn't show up to that recent pro-abortion rally in Boulder due to death threats. This is nothing new for Hearn. He's been stalked at his office and he's been shot at. He says that's the reality for abortion providers across America. Robin Vincent, KUNC. The seven Colorado River Basin states have until mid-August to drastically cut their water use. Federal officials say that's necessary to keep the river's giant reservoirs from going empty. If state leaders fail to come up with a plan, they could be facing a federal crackdown. KUNC's Luke Runyon has more on what that might look like. In June, Assistant Secretary for the Interior Department, Tanya Trujillo, spoke to a gathering of water leaders in Colorado. 
She detailed the department's recent charge, that the entire basin needed to cut 2 to 4 million acre-feet of water use to avoid a crisis. That's more than the entire state of Colorado uses from the river in a year. Here's Trujillo. We're going to likely be in a situation of doing things we've never done before. If the states don't meet this summer's deadline and make firm commitments to conserve, Trujillo made it clear the federal government is prepared to step in. At Interior, we have an obligation to protect the physical infrastructure that we own and operate so that we can ensure it will continue to operate. That infrastructure includes the river's two massive reservoirs, Lakes Mead and Powell. They're both in jeopardy of dropping to levels where hydropower shuts off and water can't move through their dams, which would cut off cities and farmers throughout the southwest. But right now, it's unclear if the mandated conservation will come from the feds or the states. I think that's a heavy lift. Terry Fulp ran Lower Colorado River operations for the Bureau of Reclamation for eight years. He says this is a long-standing tension between the federal government and the states. When a crisis takes hold on the river, the feds use the threat of intervention to wrangle even the most stubborn parties to the negotiating table. But Fulp says this time may be different. I think it'll be a big surprise for me if by August the partners come in with a plan. If that happens, the federal actions would vary across the watershed, he says. The Colorado River is split in two. Fulp says in the river's lower basin states of Nevada, California, and Arizona, the feds play an outsized role with a hand firmly planted on the river's largest spigot. Reclamation right off the bat again could change releases, release patterns. That would mean slashing the amount of water that flows downstream from the nation's biggest reservoir, Lake Mead. The states would then scramble to either find new water supplies or impose draconian restrictions. There is a recognition that the situation is even worse than anticipated on the river. J.B. Hamby is a director for the Imperial Irrigation District. The group of Southern California farmers holds rights to large volumes of water and often plants itself at the center of heated Colorado River debates. That it's in our collective interest to live with a little bit less in order to avoid having nothing. In the river's upper basin states of Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico, the federal government's powers are less clear. Peter Fleming is a lawyer for the Colorado River District, a water agency on Colorado's western slope. I don't think anybody knows specifically what any sort of single point of authority that the secretary can say, this gives me the authority to regulate or impose shortages in the upper basin states. In many ways, the whole watershed is in uncharted legal territory, and that kind of uncertainty gives way to lawsuits. You know, whether it's in the lower basin or the upper basin, the secretary shuts off the valve, um, you know, I think they know there's going to be litigation that follows. The political pressure on water managers to come up with solutions is mounting, says Elizabeth Koboly, a political science professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. The public eye is really on the river right now. If they can get beyond the current crisis, Koboly says, this moment of reckoning could open the door to other, more innovative ways to manage water in the West. That might force some changes in a way that we haven't had kind of the political will to force in, in the past. She says whether the political will to make those changes exists is still an open question. I'm Luke Runyon. 
This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Creating safe spaces for LGBTQ plus teens to express themselves is now more important than ever. Organizations in Colorado are working to create more of these spaces, including Longmont's Firehouse Art Center and the Boulder Public Library. They created Slay the Runway in 2021, which is a design program for LGBTQ plus teens. KUNC Samantha Kutsia spoke with co-creator Stephen Frost. Can you explain what Slay the Runway is and how you got involved in the program? Mm -hmm. So Slay the Runway is a program that runs um, for about two weeks now. We've done it in a couple of different forms. And essentially what it is is that we work with LGBTQIA plus teens. We teach them how to construct and deconstruct garments, put them together into looks. And then we bring in a bunch of community volunteers and a bunch of uh, collaborators from the ballroom scene, from the drag scene, and from the (laughs) CU Boulder media production scene and uh, put on a full-scale professionally produced runway show for their looks. So the concept for Slay the Runway came from Elaine Waterman, who is the artistic director for Firehouse Art Center. Um, Elaine was working with LGBTQ teens, but they weren't. There was no LGBTQ specific programs um, for them. And actually, one of the people who have been in Slay the Runway for both the two years that we've done it said to them, "You know, hey, would be really cool if you did this fashion workshop, but more focused on something like drag." I had just finished working with a group of LGBTQ teens in Maine. And I knew that I wanted to do a program just like that here in Boulder. So the timing was absolutely perfect. Um, we got a grant from Arts and Society and through Redline Project in, um, in Denver. And that actually helped us launch this first year of the program and carried us through here to the second year. So we have a lot of different people that were part of the founding of this program and making it happen. And I'm so glad that you mentioned community. It seems like the program's a great way for LGBTQ plus teens to get involved in and participate in their community. So what are some of the goals of the program? Well, that's I'm glad you mentioned community as well. That is one of the major goals. Our students come from all different high schools and middle schools across the region. Um, we actually had two out-of-state students as well. We had a student from South Carolina and a student from Arizona this year who came in to take the workshop. And they, you know, essentially have an opportunity here to meet each other, but also for the older students, the kind of older teens to be mentors to the younger teens um, as they all work together on their looks. And it's amazing because, you know, some come with totally amazing sewing skills that are beyond mine (laughs) even. And then some of them have never sewn before never walked in a play or been on a stage before. And so we're all there to support each other. So it's this kind of um, affirming environment for everybody where they're not only having affirmation, but they're also leaving there with some great new skills that they can use on their own. There's a lot of uh, sewing machines being purchased after the the (laughs) workshop's over. That's so fun. And what do you hope students who participate in Slay the Runway take away from their experience? Well, I want our designers to not only learn some really great skills, but I also want them to learn how to build community for themselves and how to connect with other LGBTQ people um, in IRL and, <laughs> and grow their own communities. And that becomes really important. I also want them to know that there are adults, families, uh, cities that all affirm them, that support them. You know, this project is really supported by 
Firehouse Arts Center, like you said, Boulder Public Library, CU Boulder, all these organizations are here to support them. And so this is a place where they can really feel welcome. Uh, they can make new friends. And then they can also leave with that confidence of walking down a runway. I want them to walk into the world the same way they walk down that runway um, after the workshop's over. Stephen, thank you so much for that. Stephen Frost is co-creator of Slay the Runway. Stephen, thank you so much for being on this morning. Oh my gosh, thanks so much for having me. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday, so please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thank you so much for spending time with KUNC's Colorado Edition. See you next week. <laughs>